Hi, I'm Nadia Cavell. I'm Ben with the Hinks. And I'm Zachary Fall. And you're listening to Migratives, the podcast championing migrant creatives in the UK. Today we speak with Ruta Irbita, a Latvian theatre designer based in London. Ruta studied design at Central St. Martins, was a finalist for the prestigious Lindbury Prize, and has since had her work seen at spaces including the Royal Court, the Finbra, and the Soho Theatre. We had the pleasure of working with Ruta in 2019 on our production of Subject Mater, and loved reconnecting with her virtually after a year of lockdowns and distancing. Ruta speaks with us about her childhood in early post-Soviet Latvia, why she loves to work in non-traditional spaces, and the importance of embedding sustainability into her design practice. Hi, Ruta. Hi, Zach. How are you? (laughs) I'm very well, thanks. We're so happy to have you on today. Uh, It's my pleasure. I'm very honored to be invited to be part of this. So, Ruta, you are originally from Latvia. Could you tell us more about your childhood and what it was like growing up there, especially when it was at a time when the country was going through major political changes, regaining independence from the Soviet Union and all? Yeah, I was actually thinking about this, that I was actually born in the Soviet Union uh, and it broke down two years later. So I was two Yeah. when Latvia gained independence. And yeah, it's really strange thinking about it that way. In a way, I feel like I grew up together with Latvia. I mean, as a <laughs> Latvia was moving from a communist system to a capitalist system as I was growing from child to an adult. So, yeah, yeah it felt very organic, of course, because children just accept whatever is in front of them, don't they? Yeah, for sure. But yeah, just thinking back at it, it feels like the kind of capitalist child experience like trickled in year by year, where maybe in my early childhood, I spent summers at my grandma's house. I remember the like we passed time by embroidering me and my brother, and that was actually really great. We had like three VHS tapes with the same kind of cartoons that we watched over <laughs> and over again. It was like dubbed in Russian because it's the only thing you could get. <laughs> so yeah, there was like there's, there's definitely been some differences probably from the way that you guys grew up, but we still loved our childhoods and loved our summers and spent you know spent the time best we we could, and we were happy. I, yeah, I, I think from an early age, I kind of really enjoyed drawing and reading and making things. So, yeah, kind of being in touch with nature a lot, like mm-hmm. countryside is really accessible in Latvia, literally like half an hour from anywhere. You can be in the middle of the forest or by the sea. And mm. so that kind of time in nature was a big part of growing up like Mm. playing hide and seek in tall grass or making little dolls from plants that you rip out of the ground and pretend that the roots of the plant is a doll's hair and the leaves. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was cute. But then I guess slowly, little by little capitalism caught up and then we got Cartoon Network at some point and we were allowed to watch it if we had done our homework. And that was like the biggest (laughs) thing. I remember when the first McDonald's arrived in Riga when I was like, in my second year of school and we were like nine mm-hmm. and I would save my pocket money so that after school I could go with my friend and have some fries in McDonald's because that was like <gasps> the coolest cafe that you could go to. <laughs> and it felt so like yeah exotic and cool and from from abroad you know 
I think that's like heritage from the Soviet times uh, that anything that was from the West was of extra value and mm. yeah. But also I think looking back at it, the good things about that were kind of the values that came from not having a lot of material things of like spending time being imaginative and kind of making do with what you have and thrift in a way was like a no-brainer like no jar would ever be wasted all jars were washed and scrubbed and used for jams the next summer and plastic bags were like also exotic and were kind of washed and reused because it was almost cool to wear a plastic bag because it also kind of was a sign of the west Mm. and what did your uh, parents do my mom was the PA of the director of the chocolate factory. So that was oh pretty cool. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So whenever we went to visit her at work, we could eat as much candy as, as we wanted. <laughs> it, it was pretty amazing. And my dad actually worked for a, a Finnish company that did insulation, like mm-hmm. stone wool insulating for houses, which is super relevant in Latvia and Finland. Mm. So nothing artistic, really. My parents both had uh, science education. My dad had a BA in physics and my mom had a BA in chemistry. Right. So what was your first exposure to art and theater that you remember? Art, I just really enjoyed drawing from an early age Mm -hmm. and making, like I said. So that kind of just came, I think, from my mom, probably because kind of linking it back to the thrift that had to be prevalent in the Soviet Union. My mom would make us clothes because you couldn't buy them. She'd make herself clothes. Mm. I think that kind of like heritage of kind of being creative and making and that kind of was passed on to me as well. So creativity was encouraged from an early age? At a domestic scale, yes. Right. Like as, as almost like as a hobby or as a necessity. It wasn't really encouraged as a valid professional choice. My parents always said that art is for others, <laughs> that mm. uh, you mm-hmm. should be a journalist or a diplomat and use your talent in language and pursue serious uh, paths in life rather than mm. the more unserious paths of creativity. Yeah. But theatre is interesting because everyone in Latvia goes to theatre. It's a very different culture where it's cool to go to theatre in Latvia. Mm. It's like the church. Everyone goes to the theatre. You can buy season tickets in theatre where you kind of get the same seat for every production of the season. Mm-hmm. And you get like an automatic ticket. So my grandma used to take me along. And yeah, so I was also exposed to theatre from an early age and kind of fell in love with it. Very cool. So when did you begin considering it as a career then? So basically the kind of creative education system in Latvia works in a way where there's only one art academy and it's super difficult to get in and it's very small amount of spaces per course mm-hmm. and I think set design is even every once every two years and there's like five people on the course per mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. so it's super cliquey in a way where it was often like the established artists children that would even attempt it or get in And then in order to get into this university, you also had to, by default, know academic drawing. And in order to learn that before the entry exams, people that were interested in pursuing a career in art usually went to one of the two arts education high schools. So Mm -hmm. basically, if you didn't go to one of these for the last three years of your high school education, it was very unlikely that you'd get into the university. 
And my friends went to these art high schools and I really wanted to go as well. My parents just said no. Mm. It's not going to happen for you, even though I really, really wanted to. And they said, go and learn maths and science and languages. Yeah. Mm. So then, in a way, that dream kind of stopped there when I was, I don't know, maybe 15. I kind of also stopped drawing and kind of just parked Mm. that and observing how my friends who were like amazing painters and drawers how they struggled to get into this university afterwards and like year by year they tried again and again and I was like now this is absolutely not for me like I'm not the child of a famous painter like I should yeah. just choose something else I started studying in the culture academy of Latvia and I studied cultural relations between Latvia and the UK actually for a year kind of the history of the UK and the language and culture. I enjoyed it because I've always enjoyed England and English language, but it was kind of a bit dry, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I went to London for a summer holiday after the first year of this degree and just kind of never went back. So was... <laughs> wow. Was it love at first sight? It was, yeah, it was. I kind of, I think I just inhaled the breath of freedom. Do you know what I mean? Where right. I yeah. away from everything and suddenly everything's possible. Yeah. Mm. And I met a boy who was studying in London College of Fashion. Right. Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, why don't you just try to get in? Mm. And why don't you try to get into Central St. Martins? That's like the best one. Try that one. Why not? And somehow... <laughs> He just kind of opened the door of possibility for me to even think about pursuing that kind of dream career that I've always had, but had kind of parked for a good five years. Mm. Mm. And then he kind of took me under his wing and said that he's going to help me prepare my portfolio because, of course, I hadn't done anything artistic for a long time. So I was kind of ground zero. Mm-hmm. I spent like half a year in London preparing this portfolio and applied and got in. And that That's was that. so cool. That's fantastic. Was it a set design course specifically? No, I think the good thing about all UAL colleges, I think, is that you can start with a foundation in art and design. So it's kind of a more general pre-higher education kind of year. Like a foundational year? Yeah, 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 where you kind of explore all areas. Like we had Mm. like a month of fashion, a month of fine art, a month of performance design. So Mm. you kind of almost example a bit of everything and then make your decision Mm. and kind of apply for the BA. And how did your parents react when you made that decision then to stay in the UK and apply? So, because at first I kind of just told them, I'm sorry, but I'm not coming back. And that was a big drama because I hadn't yet got in. They just knew that I wanted it. And they're like, what the hell are you doing? You're like just moving away from home to what work bar jobs in London and do what? And you're like abandoning your degree in Latvia and what's mm. going on? Yeah. I think I needed that rebellion to kind of find the freedom to pursue what I wanted. For sure. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards I got in, of course, they were supportive and they were like, great, go for it. Because it's somehow it seemed more serious to them because... I think also the name that Simpson Martins has in the art world, mm. they kind of read up on it and they're like, okay, yeah, this is serious. Yeah, maybe yeah. she can go for it. So that helped a lot as well. So what drew you to design in particular? So in this foundation year, I think during that month of experiencing performance design and like the possibilities that that degree offered, and kind of meeting the people that were also drawn to it uh, and finding my most like-minded friends there. Mm-hmm kind of 
yeah, it, it just felt very natural. It felt like in a way I didn't have to choose between my love of literature, of visuals, of storytelling. I didn't have to choose whether I'm going to do clothes or objects or spaces because it was kind of incorporating all of that. Mm. Yeah. And of course, kind of linking back to my growing up experience and loving theatre and going to theatre a lot in Latvia that also just fed into it. And so you studied performance design, like you said, at CSM and graduated with a first class diploma in 2013. And well, how was your first year afterwards? How was it as a professional in the UK and in the London sphere? It was really good. I had a really good time with my course. I uh, really felt like I found my creative confidence and kind of was starting to develop like the visual language and the kind of artist that I wanted to be. And then my tutors encouraged me to apply for the Lindbury Prize, which is, I think it's the only young set designer kind of competition in the UK that kind of helps propel you in the professional theatre world. Mm -hmm. However, I was like kind of really pursuing devised work during my degree and self-directed stuff where I came up with concepts with people from my course and kind of designed them together and also sometimes performed in them. So I didn't actually have any theatre experience that I took away from my course. So I thought, well, I don't even have a theatre design essentially in my portfolio, but oh well, I'm going to try and apply for this competition anyway. So it was a big surprise that I got chosen to be one of the finalists and I worked with Scottish Dance Theatre and that was really great because I think they were open-minded enough to kind of take on board someone who's got all this performative design that maybe wasn't necessarily conventional theatre design. And through that experience, I actually learned the nitty gritty of theatre. I did a placement at the National Theatre afterwards where I actually learned for the first time who a stage manager is and who a production manager is and <laughs> what a proscenium arch is. And so, yeah, it was kind of like a lived experience. And then it kind of all went from there. Wow. Ruta, I was wondering if being a finalist for the Limbury Prize opened up doors for you, if it sort of helped you secure other work moving onwards, because it's quite an accolade, as you've highlighted, and being probably the only graduate award for designers. Did you feel that it gave you recognition coming out of that? Yes, definitely. I feel like a lot of young theatre practitioners, directors, companies that maybe don't have uh, kind of a word to mouth recommendation of a designer or that don't know the designer community, they kind of look at that list and kind of invite people to talk to them from that Lindbury Prize finalist list. So mm. definitely that kind of opened many doors because somehow my name was suddenly on the radar. Yeah. And also I think people that kind of saw your work elsewhere and then checked up on you and saw that, oh, they're a Lindbury Prize finalist, that also kind of gave that extra validation, if you wish. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think for most of us who've tried to work in this industry, the first couple of years are just generally so challenging, getting used to the uncertainty and the rejection and so on. You know, the highs when they come are incredible, but how have you navigated those highs and lows and what's kind of the motivation that gets you through it? There were definitely low points, <laughs> but mm. whenever there was a really low point, just at that point when I was about to start thinking about an alternative or kind of getting out or going back home or moving somewhere, some other project that was exciting enough came along and kind of 
kept me on the hook if you know what I mean mm. so yeah it was it's been interesting where there's been a few times where I've been okay this is just this is impossible like this is not mm. how I want to live um working tirelessly not having a life getting paid pennies not even knowing what I'm doing this for and then somehow mm. something comes along and you're like oh okay maybe I'm getting somewhere maybe I'll stay a bit longer and see where it takes me the kind of like this is why feeling that some projects bring you this is why I'm doing it. Yes, yeah. There's always yeah. that project that comes along and is like hooks yeah. you back in. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. And also, of course, like the incredible joy of just seeing something that you worked really hard towards being born on stage. It's just crack, isn't it? Like you kind of, mm. yeah. It's, it's quite addictive. Um, you kind of want yeah. that experience again and again. Yeah. yeah. I was listening to this podcast and probably going to cut this one out but um this guy was comparing it like it's like a very short-lived erection yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. get hard again every time that takes a while but okay anyway it was, <laughs> it was terrible comparison but it it somehow stuck <laughs> i think yeah. also you get that low after a project don't you which is like you always forget how bad that is when you've worked on something that you've loved for however many weeks and then it finishes and just on that last night or whenever it is that you step away from it you just have this crushing sense of like what am I going to do with my life next so you have to find the next mm. thing and you just yeah you're just constantly chasing that feeling yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah what do you think set you apart when you applied for the Lindbury Prize I guess the fact that I was thinking of performance design in kind of non-conventional ways, because in a way, I guess that it was not kind of model boxes. It was all actually realized work. I didn't have a single speculative project in my design portfolio when I graduated. It was all stuff that I had actually made and kind of performed, and it was all photographs of real things. Mm which I guess kind of showed that I have maybe an understanding of real space, of real possibilities and limitations and kind of physics almost, like what's possible, what will stand, what won't. Because I feel like <laughs> a lot of the speculative kind of design courses where you just graduate with a model box design, that people have no idea of how much this will cost or if that thing mm. that hangs in the model box is actually achievable in reality without mm. a hundred thousand pound budget yeah which i think is part of a good designer where you kind of dream of ideas that you can then bring to life because if it just stays in the dream phase then and it's also like that less is more thing right or making the most out of very little i remember working with a designer on my short film and feeling a bit embarrassed by how low the fee was that i could offer her and she was like no this is great because this means i have to be way more resourceful i'm so much more excited by small budgets than by big ones. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think I totally agree with her because in a way, restrictions make you more creative. They force you to be creative. They force mm. you to think about how to realize this idea, this like visual cue in a way that isn't kind of high tech requiring uh, fake blood and i don't know crazy yeah. crazy things yeah 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 <laughs> and th did you purposefully stay away from speculative projects was that a choice you made during my ba yes definitely i somehow just was really drawn to the reality of the real space and the atmosphere that i can achieve with like you say really simple resourceful ways 
yeah, somehow I was just interested in going to flea markets and looking at things that could be evocative props. And yeah, somehow I was more inspired by the real world than by kind of the things that I could imagine on paper, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. So you, over the years, have had your designs seen at spaces all over London, certainly and beyond, including the Royal Court, the Finborough, Soho Theatre, the Pleasance. What have been some of the most rewarding productions you've worked on and what has made them so rewarding to you? So I think one of the most rewarding ones has been with a queer theatre company called Outbooks Theatre where we devised a beautiful piece of work, autobiographical piece of work with seven queer performers, kind of telling their stories of gender identity. Mm. And it was just really beautiful and it felt very meaningful. And we staged it at a community centre, which is also very fitting. It's called the Rose Lippman Building in uh, Haggerston. Mm. It was one of those moments where this this is why I'm doing it. It just felt mm. like such a true joy. And then that show got picked up by the Bush Theatre and we restaged it there. So that was really wonderful to see how something that maybe isn't so mainstream and isn't uh, conventional can still be recognised. That was a really beautiful moment. Yeah. And I'm an associate designer for a children's theatre company called The Herd. They're based in Hull. And mm -hmm. I designed a show for them called Slime. And it was uh, for a two to five-year-olds. Mm. And it was touring house libraries. And we kind of wanted the design, the kind of environment of the show to be immersive, first of all, and to also be kind of a playground experience for the children. Mm -hmm. So it was like basically this like soft garden lands in the middle of your local library. And once you enter, you're kind of in this beautiful abstract world of the slug and the caterpillar and just seeing children's joy and wonder of like seeing their familiar spaces transformed beyond recognition is that kind of, I think, magic that theatre mm. can and should do. So, yeah. I think those have been highlights. Also, I designed a youth theatre festival for the Royal Court. That was also amazing. Where mm -hmm. for a whole month, a group of young people were allowed to kind of take over the Royal Court building mm. with like a variety of shows written by them and performed by them and concerts and kind of immersive experiences. So in a way, we kind of transformed the whole building. And that was also really, really great. That's very cool. It sounds like you're kind of drawn to projects that either are telling maybe a story that isn't often heard or telling it in a new space or are sort of opening spaces up to new audiences or new experiences. Does that sound right? That sounds spot on, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think a devised process is really close to my heart, I think mainly because Usually the traditional hierarchy of theatre making, a designer is essentially serving someone else's idea. Mm. And in devising it, it feels like there's more equality and my voice mm. can be heard more and is more meaningful in a way. Mm. Uh, and I think I've always really appreciated that. And I think, yeah, the point that you mentioned about telling stories that maybe are not often heard or that are being brought to people that don't always hear them, I think is also very important to me. And how do you go about that in the design process with that knowledge about trying to bring a story to a new audience or bring in a new audience to a space? How does that inform the design process? 
I think the main thing would be kind of expanding your points of reference to something beyond the highbrow and kind of like looking at pop music videos and fine art and photography and the street and mm-hmm. kind of just being inspired by the world in its wider sense rather than like I often feel like theater is self-referential and I've always tried to kind of avoid that yeah and kind of search for inspiration elsewhere yeah that definitely resonates I think we often don't look beyond our own medium enough can you just talk us through your design process more broadly when somebody sends you a script and they say I'd like to work with you on this or you've applied to work on something what is your process from that day onwards I guess I'd call myself a collager, I think. Somehow I've never regained my confidence in drawing since that childhood drama of not. So yeah, I'm I'm still really not much of a drawer, but I work a lot with texture and colour and materials and shapes. And somehow when I read the script, for example, those kind of visuals start staring up and I try to take note of them and kind of find materials and images that kind of resonate with those. And I think I'm very much about a conversation with Mm. the other creatives. Like I would never be a designer who just goes to the studio, builds model boxes in their head and goes and presents it back. Like I will come to you with my initial, oh, I really think that blue velvet is right for this. I don't know why, but what do you think? And (laughs) somehow kind of working on the visual language together with the director, with the writer, with the actors. I'm actually a big fan of taking inspiration from actors. So mm. vice versa, that way is really great because everyone's there and everyone has a voice. Yeah, for sure. I wondered if you, during your early years in London, if there were productions that you saw that really chimed with you and that you kind of connected to and aspired to draw on some of that inspiration. Absolutely. I was a regular goer of the Mime Festival throughout Mm. my first years of my life in London. I think mainly because it was theatre that was telling stories in different ways and not necessarily with words and kind of physical, visual spectacles have always really drawn me in. And Pina Bausch, when I went to see Pina Bausch at Settle as well, that just blew my head off. Mm. So yeah, I think London is really amazing in that respect that you can see that international level work here. Mm. And even if mm. you buy the ten pound ticket up in the highest balcony at the Barbican, you still get the impression of what's possible. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, it's been really great. I know we've spoken before about sustainability, particularly within the theatre process and theatre design. I know this is something that's really important to you. Would you be able to talk through your process of realizing that that was important and what drew you to to thinking about this? Yes. So I think maybe because of my upbringing in this transitional phase of Latvia moving away from communism where there was nothing, where people had to queue for a year to get a new coat and to kind of arriving in the UK where there was abundance and waste and like mad consumerism and Primark. I, I remember <laughs> first going yeah. to Primark and like seeing that a t-shirt cost like one pound and my, I was just like, what? <laughs> what? How is this possible? And I think also in Latvia, all theatres are repertoire theatres where mm. a show gets put into an archive with the stage design and gets like kind of resurrected year by year so in a way everything gets reused nothing is like 
mm. this kind of realization of the amount of waste that the British theatre system creates with these like short-lived shows where after four weeks, this whole environment that you've created with 10 meters of carpet and X amount of velvet and 10 sheets of plywood, it just all ends up in the bin. And mm -hmm. that just blew my mind so much that I often found that I almost had to like switch a switch off in my head in order to do my job, mm -hmm. the switch that kind of worried about those things. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and I remember there have been times where costume supervisors kind of encouraged me to like go and like source costume from Primark and I'm like no I'd rather spend my time I know that I'm not paid so much but I'd rather go and scour hundreds charity shops to find the items that I need rather than I've had stage managers who bin costume after a show because they can't be bothered to wash it and take it to a charity shop and oh, all wow. of these kind of throwaway culture has just bothered me so much that after a while I just decided that I can't I can't keep going I need to do something about this mm -hmm. And I had the opportunity to kind of take some time out because I felt really confused and burnt out and like, what am I supposed to do? I need to pay rent. How do I stop doing it if I need stuff to kind of support myself? You know, London doesn't really offer you time to reflect and rethink. It kind of pushes you further in this like relentless cycle. And my partner got offered a half a year residency in Japan and I just went with him to kind of rethink my life. And that was the time when I decided that if I actually want to do something about my passion, about kind of reducing waste and changing mindsets. And yeah, I found this MA at Central St. Martins as well called Material Futures that is trying to find these solutions for a better future in like a very broad sense. And I decided that I think it's time for me to embark on a new adventure so yeah that's what i'm doing now in my second year i'm gonna graduate in june and how's it going it's been pretty intense it's been a meat mincing machine i must say especially at my age to like go into education again it's been mm. really amazing but also very very difficult i remember going to the open day for this course and they said that in the first year we're gonna break you down <laughs> we're gonna break down everything you've ever known about design and the world and then we're going to rebuild you. Mm. So yeah, that's kind of what's happened a bit. But in a way, I came wanting to be broken down. Like I came ready. I was like, yes, I want mm. to kind of reevaluate everything. Yeah. And somehow COVID has been the perfect time to really do that because I don't feel like I'm missing out too much and I can just really focus on it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I was just going to ask how it has felt to take on this new challenge and direction in times of COVID. Well, it started uh, before COVID hit, so it hit in the yes. middle of my first year. And in the first year, I was still working on projects, and that was super intense. Where, like, after a day of school, all my course mates are going drinking, I'm going to like dress or something. Yeah, <laughs> that was quite mm -hmm. intense. And then, of course, everything moved online, and we were stuck at home, and we're stuck at home again. And it's difficult. But everyone's in the same boat, so I'm just trying to keep my chin up and push through despite not having the amazing uh, facilities that the university offer and do the best I can. Mm. And do you feel like when you come out, when you graduate, you'll still be involved in the theatre or will you go into a different sphere? Yeah, I think I will. Like, in a way, when I embarked on the MA, I was thinking 
is this my kind of way out? Yeah. But as I'm going through them, I'm kind of remembering all the reasons why I love theatre in the first place and why it's incredibly valuable for us as human race and how maybe it's just about tweaking the way we do it, tweaking the way I do it and kind of how I approach it. And it's been really good revaluation period of realizing which relationships I want to keep and like the company that I'm associate designer for, the Herd Theatre, they are actually really on board with the sustainability thing and we're developing a new children's show that will go up, who knows when. But I suggested, should we have a challenge of having a 100% plastic free show? And they said, yeah, let's try it. So in a way, yeah, I think it's just about taking the new knowledge that I've gained and applying it and I guess in a way, I just didn't want to just be a theatre designer. Like I would like to be many things yeah, and leave many doors open. And I feel like this MA will allow me to do that, where I can still do the projects that I want to do in a way that I want to do them mm. and kind of pursue other things on the side. Yeah. What sort of other things? So I'm kind of exploring this new biomaterial that's emerging in the biodesign scene which is called mycelium, which is basically the root system of mushrooms Mm. that kind of grow around the food that they eat, making into this like solid material that actually would be really perfect for set design, especially in the way (laughs) that set design is used in the UK because it's uh, naturally flame repellent. Oh, wow. It's biodegradable, so you can basically crumb it up after four weeks of show and feed it to your houseplants or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) So that's kind of like a passion project that I keep pursuing and learning about. And also I'm kind of engaging in a bit more of a critical design where I'm kind of trying to unpick some of the materials that are around us and working on kind of archiving the complexities of that and raising awareness and educating mm. and all of that with the sustainability in mind, which mm. I have learned actually is already a dated term, by the way. Really? Yeah, being sustainable yeah. is not enough anymore. We now need to be regenerative. Oh. Basically, that mm. sustainable means that we just keep things as they are, as best we can. Well, mm-hmm. for that, it's already too late. We kind of need to now work towards improving things and working on biodiversity and all of that yeah one of the biggest revelations that i have had during my time on this ma where through kind of reading loads of books about sustainability and all of that i've realized that it's kind of a very arrogant point of view for us to think that we need to save the planet that the planet needs us that we somehow need to uh, help the planet that actually the planet is totally fine and will be totally fine after we're all gone. That actually the whole sustainability thing is not serving the planet, that it's serving ourselves, that in a way mm-hmm. we are trying to save ourselves as the human race. We're trying to preserve mm-hmm. the planet to be a habitable environment for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If we fail at that, we'll be gone, but the planet will live on. Mm-hmm. Like species will change and new ones will evolve. And yeah, of course, sadly, some of the existing ecological miracles will be gone, but some new ones will emerge. Mm -hmm. So I think that that mindset of us saving the planet is actually not so correct. 
that yeah. we need to think about saving ourselves. And I think that's really interesting that that kind of mindset change, those people that don't care about the environment, they just care about their kind of short-term pleasures of takeaways and plastic boxes and Primark <laughs> clothes, that they don't realize that what they're doing is actually ruining the chances for us. Mm. Yes, yeah. uh, I agree. It's actually such a good argument for people who are like, oh, you know, I, I don't care about saving nature and this animal or that animal, because there are people like that. A lot. Yeah. Yeah. But actually, it's about, like you say, preservation of ourselves, preserving and even regenerating, like you said, an environment in which we can exist, I want to say with more ease. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because if things keep getting worse and worse, we're just going to have to live on much more, I guess, more and more artificial things. And what I fear might be isolating and especially being apart from nature. We know those all have impacts on well-being. So mm. there might be ways to survive even if we don't do something. It might be complicated, but the cost in terms of well-being will be very heavy and it will take a heavy toll. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just always think, you know, these people who live for their short-lived pleasure and what matters is me, my bubble, my family, my friends. But I always think, okay, but then think about your like grandchildren. Like I always think it's slightly absurd to think like that. But anyway. Yeah. I think humans just struggle with long-term thinking in general. For sure. Yeah. Even yeah. though we all love our children and we want our grandchildren to be happy, we are unable to kind of grasp. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's kind of weirdly sometimes a solace for me when I feel incredibly anxious about mm. the climate change and ecological disasters and pollution and all this waste and stuff. Sometimes mm -hmm. it's quite nice to actually think, well, actually, the planet will be fine. It's just yeah. us that will suffer. <laughs> yeah. no, that makes a lot of sense. The last few weeks, I've been reading a lot of kind of paleobiology and paleontology, just looking at sort of previous extinction events and things like that. And you just you realize how normal these things are. And yeah. how the planet, yeah, in a few million years, there will be incredibly diverse ecosystems again. But we won't be here, you know. Exactly. So, yeah. Yeah. Zooming out to that kind of macro scale sometimes is quite soothing. It's like yeah. maybe yeah. I can just chill out a bit and just uh, enjoy my time while I'm on this planet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, such a balance, isn't it? We are here for such a short time, and it is a gift life. So yeah, we mustn't forget to enjoy, but. Yeah. Yeah. But also the enjoyment doesn't necessarily need to mean trashing the planet, you know. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. We need to kind of, in a way, reassess enjoyment, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like you're definitely someone who's going to help pave the way towards a more sustainable and regenerative theatre industry. So to take us into my section, which is more about the industry at large and how you've experienced it, how would you say the UK industry compares to the one back home? I mean, it's obviously one of the leaders worldwide, but how do you hope it will evolve and what do you think it could learn from other countries? So I guess the biggest difference is the size, really, where yeah. there's like four theatres in Latvia. And before I left, there was not a single fringe venue. Now I think there's two, maybe, or three. <laughs> So because of the size, it's also incredibly cliquey, like similar to the kind of art scene where like I never, ever would have dreamt to be a theater designer in Latvia. And mm. so that kind of the possibility that I felt here has been incredible. 
And also, I guess it's much more European, Latvian theatre, which, of course, I absolutely love. That kind of freedom of form and mm. the kind of less rigid hierarchies and more cross-disciplinary artist participation. Like, I recently went to see a show in Latvia that was directed by a philosopher like a, a well-established philosopher that runs like a philosophy magazine. And it was like amazing. And uh, fine artists design sets sometimes and it's all much more fluid. And I think mm. a lot of interesting rich work, of course, comes from that. And I, I really hope that the UK moves in that direction theatre-wise. So to be sort of more cross-disciplinary or intertextual in a way. Yeah, I think open as well because... Yeah. It was like, yeah, the UK theatre is very closed, very closed. Yeah, it's really bizarre. I have worked in the theatre industry for uh, like eight years and never have I ever done anything in Europe or that hasn't been a collaboration with Europe or, or anywhere else, really. It's all just within the borders of the island. And I feel yeah. like that's yeah. a shame. Very insular, yeah. Yeah, there's a few people who might be invited through the festivals, like the Mime Festival. And actually, more often than not, it's within projects that aren't spoken word or where spoken yeah. word is less important. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. It feels like uh, British theatre is still very much interested in its own historic texts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> not to name anyone, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean... They do have some great, great playwrights, obviously, but yeah, <laughs> yeah. I agree that they should be more open-minded, for sure. And based on your experience working in the British theatre industry, how present have you found migrant artists to be on and off stage? I actually had to smile at this question because <laughs> literally almost none. Wow. So it's been really surprising how, like, very often I did find myself as the only non-British mm. person in the company even though it's never been a problem it's always been really great and I've always felt part of the team and I've always felt really welcome but often it has offered challenges for example me not understanding cultural references and kind yeah. of not having anyone else in the room who also doesn't get it but we can maybe offer something else it has never been exclusive knowingly but sometimes it has felt a bit like oh I'm not quite sure what to say because I don't know what they're talking about yeah mm. so in a way overall you felt welcome but you still feel like the exception yes yeah yes of course there have been exceptions like working with you guys has been really yeah. great and there have been times of course where there are non-British people in the room but yeah those times have been rare yeah, I agree. They're very rare. And what we've been realizing with our conversations is that it's not just on stage, because I don't think it should be, but I think it's a little bit more understandable with actors because language and accent and whatnot, though I think actually they should be more open-minded. But when it comes to offstage, I think there's absolutely no excuse not to have more diversity, if you know what I mean. Maybe that's why I haven't encountered many non-British people in the room because there are other designers that work in other shows. So I know yeah. that between designers, there's quite a few European people that I know. Mm -hmm. Okay. But yeah, in a company producing a show, very often I've been the only one. Yeah. And I think that's, again, like just an illustration of the insularity of the British theatre system. For sure. Yeah. 
And again, we've touched on COVID a little bit already, but how have you fared professionally and personally in, in the face of Brexit, COVID, and maybe other major political events that have occurred over the last few years? I guess Brexit was a very sad day that I yeah. I did not expect it to happen. It just mm. felt like a bad dream. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think that made me question whether the UK and London will be the place that I fell in love with mm. and whether I want to stay here. And in a way, COVID has kind of proved to all of us, I think, that distance is not necessarily a problem. Yeah. And in a way the dream of kind of moving back home but not severing my ties with the UK is ever more real now when I feel like I could be having this call from my countryside house in Latvia right now and it would yeah. not make a difference and I would still be uh, yeah I just dream of Latvia being connected by railway to the UK yeah. <laughs> so that I could get on a sleeper train and uh, come over to a production week so yeah. yeah I think it's just kind of opened up possibilities really both mm, of these mm. terrible events. Yeah. I think we're kind of relearning how the world could work, which is, I think, trying to see it from a positive angle. Mm. For mm. sure. And speaking of your nostalgia for Latvia, how would you describe home? What does home mean to you when you hear that word? I guess I always say that my blood runs in the rivers of Latvia, that's for sure. Mm. <laughs> um, Latvia is definitely home, home for me. But at the mm. same time, I don't have a physical home there anymore. My parents downsized when me and my brother moved out. And now when I go over, I sleep in their library where I barely have space to open my suitcase. But <laughs> that doesn't really feel like home. But at the same time, the country itself, the landscape, the colors, the kind of smell in the air, that's definitely home for me. But then whenever I'm there, of course, I think of London as my home home because this is where my life is, my friends, my yeah. career, my stuff, mm -hmm. my wardrobe, you know. So in a way, both of them are home, I think. But at the risk of sounding cheesy, I'd say that my home is where my boyfriend is. Because <laughs> when we were in Japan for six months, that was definitely not something familiar, like home in the familiar sense. Yeah. But... It felt homey because we were there together and we had a life together before. So, yeah, yeah, I think the world is my home. I want to say that. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> and then what part of what home is to you is the UK? What would you say is the most British thing about you and then the least British thing about you? Oh, I'm really <laughs> into British manners. I have totally adopted them. I love them. Whenever I go to Latvia, I miss them from the second I land because people are just rude. Like now oh I God, see it as rude, but, but yeah. it's just the culture there where there's no smiles, no thank yous, no mm. excuse me, no, like none of this kind of fluff that the mm -hmm. British have that I actually really love and will really, really miss if I ever don't have that. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah. I remember coming here and like being called sweetheart by the bus driver. And I was like almost moved to tears. And then, <laughs> <laughs> I know. I remember like, I mean, this is slightly different, but still wearing like purple tights at University in Zurich and getting the evil eye from like 80% of the canteen. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like the who the hell is she eye? Like, why does she think she can strut in here in purple tights? Because everybody's sort of in gray, black, and white. I mean, I'm generalizing slightly, but 
it is a little bit like that. But we're in London, I mean, you can look like whatever and nobody bats an eyelid and the bus driver calls you sweetheart. I just, yeah. Yeah, exactly <laughs> that. You're just allowed to be whoever you want to be and you will still be treated with grace. Yeah. And I think that is just so beautiful and something that I think a lot of people kind of uh, undermine it as being fake or as being kind of like um, insincere. But I just think that that makes everyone's life more enjoyable and kind of the, the day-to-day annoying stuff. It just makes it bearable, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I agree, yeah. yeah. And you can still be straight talking and you can still be blunt if need be, but have manners. Yeah. I have to say that's the biggest culture shock for me anywhere is always just that thing of just how you phrase something. And I know it's something I always need to like be aware of and like everywhere you go and everyone you speak to has a different way of phrasing things. But I think that kind of politeness is just so ingrained to most people here. Like phrasing things maybe as a question rather than as a statement or kind of Mm. saying, would you mind doing this or whatever? It's like, yeah, yeah, it's unavoidable. And it's so ingrained into our psyche that like when people don't say that, it feels like offensive, even though that's ridiculous. (laughs) Like we need to, we need need to, you know. Like get a grip, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we need to get a grip, we need to get a grip, but it's, yeah, it's so British. And and what would you say is the least British thing then? I was thinking about this yesterday uh, and I actually asked my boyfriend. I think we came to the conclusion that it's maybe my love of fermented food. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's so Eastern European and I yes. don't think any British person that I've ever met likes them. It's probably generalizing, but... Ben? You know, I like, I I mean, sourdough, right? That's fermented. I like. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure if that, but okay, sure, sure. Kombucha, kefir. Ooh, kombucha and kefir. Those are very big steps, Ben. I'm really impressed. (laughs) Thank you. My my British taste buds um, struggled initially. but... (laughs) But yeah, it's like, it's about getting accustomed to those. So what kind of things do you like? I'm a big fan of kimchi and I make it at home all the time. Mm. And everyone always, I live with two boys and they're both like, oh my God, what stinks here? (laughs) Kimchi. Oh, it stinks, but it's delicious. Please give me your recipe, by the way. I'm dying to try to make some. I will, I will. I have a kimchi cookbook. I'm obsessed. Wow. Uh, Yeah, just anything really. I have kombucha as well and I have kefir and sourdough, of course, and all kinds of pickles, anything you can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow. all the pickles pickled egg <laughs> you see i've never been big on eggs i think boiled eggs is the, like the only thing that i don't really like so pickling them uh-huh. seems wrong but yes. <laughs> so just to finish what would you say are your hopes for the future personally and professionally and in terms of society at large I guess I just want to contribute to making the world a better place with my existence, with my brief existence on this planet. And I just hope that people will grow and that awareness will grow and understanding of the mess that we've made of some things, that awareness will kind of help starting to unpick that mess and remedy it, regenerate it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, and I hope that with my professional pursuits, in whichever direction that I will be able to contribute to that. And I feel like that's already happening, so I'm quite hopeful. This time for everyone to stop and rethink, I think has been valuable. 
Mm. It's difficult, but valuable. Mm. Yeah. What do you think that looks like? That's quite hard. <laughs> Not wanting to sound like a mad hippie or <laughs> or like an extremist, <laughs> but I don't know. People embracing a slower way of life mm. and looking inwards for happiness a bit more and less mm. in consuming of material goods, of course, and gearing towards realizing that our lives are about experiencing them and sharing those experiences with the people around us and kind of putting the emphasis on that. So, yeah, essentially consumerist culture kind of being reevaluated a bit. Yeah. Because that has brought a lot of the ecological problems that we're experiencing now. The kind of pursuit of infinite growth that is just not possible. Mm-hmm. The realization that we only have one planet and it can be exhausted and mm-hmm. that we're heading that way and that's dangerous. Yeah, kind of just, I guess the realization that infinite growth is a myth would be great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to be hopeful like you and part of me is, but then a part of me is like really worried that once we come out of this, you know, people are going to rush and and want to do what they couldn't do again and do it in excess. And I guess sometimes through the people I teach French to or people who are not in the arts that we know or even my family, I just see like behaviors still got such a long way to go. And it's like, how do we bridge that gap between us artists who are perhaps more critical of the world and wanting to change it and those who just are happy with the status quo. But isn't that the, you know, an ageless question, I suppose. It is. It's the big one, isn't it? Mm-hmm. But I guess that's our duty as artists to kind of yeah. move away, isn't it? And yeah, I also just spoke recently to someone where I'm thinking, oh yeah, COVID is making everyone do yoga and meditate and kind of learn more about themselves and realize how important actually is human contact and communication rather than going shopping or whatever. And then they say, oh, yeah, but some of those people are actually just ordering from Amazon every day to like kind of uh, substitute for the things that they're not able to do anymore. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, it's a double-edged sword. And I probably live in a sort of an eco chamber at the moment where I'm thinking the thoughts that I want to think. Yeah, but at the same time, you're the type of person that's going to pave the way, so... Well, that's very optimistic, Nadia. I really think so. True, it's true. (laughs) I think think it's about us kind of not letting go and being stubborn and keep on pushing for a better future. Mm. Well, that's a beautiful note to end on, I think. Thank you so, so much, Ruta. It's been such a joy speaking to you about things that perhaps when we worked together, we didn't have as much opportunity to. (laughs) Yeah, it's been so good. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, thank you. Thank you. To find out more about Ruta, please check out the links in this episode's show notes. You've been listening to Migratives, a podcast produced by Woven Voices. Migratives is created and hosted by Zachary Fall, Ben Weaver Hinks, and me, Nadia Cavell. Our music is by Guy Hughes, and our artwork is designed by Lucy Stapleton-Smith. To support the podcast, you can rate, review, and subscribe on the platform of your choice. And to find out more about our work, follow Woven Voices on social media, or check out our website, wovenvoices.org.